this is a conversation. So that means really listening to the person and being attentive and really thinking about what is the next natural question that might come out of what we just heard? What is often compelling and exciting in those driveway moments or when you understand the kind of personal side of that story or really get to put two very different ideas together. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. This episode marks the official end of season one of The Other 80. We thought we'd make today's episode a little different. Today, my producer Avery is asking the questions, and I am the guest. We talk about the takeaways from season one, where we want to go with season two, and a peek at how we make the podcast. All season, Avery has been working behind the scenes to help put this podcast together. I'm going to let Avery introduce herself. Hi, I'm Avery Moore-Kloss. I'm a podcast producer and sound designer. I've been working on The Other 80 with Claudia for many months, and we've heard so many interesting voices on this show, so I'm excited for all of you to have the tables turned on Claudia. So please, welcome to The Other 80, Claudia Williams. So we've been making this podcast for many months. It's been a great education for me. And I'm really interested in knowing how it's been for you, why you did this, what you're learning, like what has surprised you. So I guess the very first question is just, number one, why do this? And and why did you call it the other 80? Sure. I was actually remembering something the other day that I'd forgotten, which was I went to this hippie school, grade school, we were studying the depression and our assignment was to find someone who lived through the depression and interview them about their life, what happened. And it was, it was like some light bulb turned on. I was like, wow, you can talk to people and learn from them in this super interesting structured way. And then we did another assignment two years later that was find someone that had started a business And so that was a foundation for wanting to do this work that I'd actually honestly forgotten about, which is the love of conversation as the pathway to learning and learning for myself and learning for others. In terms of the topic, this is really grounded in experiences I had in California before I left last June, which was watching this incredible policy they had developed called CalAIM roll out. And there were so many aspects of it. It was very complicated. It was very ambitious. And watching the the individual organizations make progress, but also struggle. And it seemed to me a big basis of the struggling was not having a rapid enough learning cycle. And as I thought about what I'm really interested in, I'm very, very passionate about Medicaid and about making the world really better for people with the least resources. And so these three threads of loving having structured conversation and interviews, really being passionate about this future direction of Medicaid, which is knitting together medical and social care, and then observing that um, open learning and learning in public is the way we're going to speed up the implementation of all of this nationally. So the other 80 came out of that um, medical social care integration and refers to the fact that estimates are that 80% of our health is determined by things other than medical care. 
That's so interesting. I love that you say learning in public because honestly, I think that's really encapsulates what you've been doing with this podcast. What are you learning in public that that maybe you hadn't quite put your finger on before? One item is the fairly stark realization that underneath a lot of this is just poverty and how hard it is to live in the United States if one is poor. And so I think the question that raises that I'm still grappling with is how far should we go and putting on people who are working in health the responsibility of the impact of poverty? One way to answer that is to say, well, look at all the resources that are in healthcare. Yes, of course. This is what's making people not healthy. Of course, we should spend these resources on housing, on food, on other things. Other people, though, are saying, but wait a minute, those people are delivering health services. They're not even delivering health services well. Why should there be this expanded mandate for them? And then there's another layer of it, which is just comparing the U.S. to Europe and other countries, how much less we spend on social services. So I just think that question of what is the role of the health and the medical system where should the line be? How do we think about our disinvestment in, in social services and things that will help people get out of poverty? I think those are really big, big questions. And it, it's taken me more and more down the pathway of wanting to better understand poverty itself and how it plays out in the U.S. and our housing policies and all of these things. I think another layer, which was something I really realized was there, but it's just come up so often, is the question of policy as the shaper of direction versus implementation as what assures that we'll actually get the impact we wanted with the policy. And having a lot of conversations with people where they they were like, you know, implementation is really what matters. And we don't actually know what it looks like to implement well. Like we don't know which services in, in the housing portfolio should go to which people. We don't really have a tool set for doing those rapid data collections and evaluation. Um, we don't know what kinds of organizations are best. So there's just all of these questions around what is truly impactful and what leads to high impact. And then I think the last piece of that is concern in some quarters that our policies are getting ahead of our ability to implement that, that the pace of change and the breadth of change is so much that we may just not be able to execute on the, the bold vision that is laid out in the policy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do want to dive into that implementation piece, but but also you've interviewed some really interesting guests this season and, and they've all had a lot to say on on many topics. And so I thought in this episode, we could play some highlights from those interviews throughout. I thought the highlight here to cut away to would be some answers from your guests about this same question. What is becoming clear to them as they peel back these same layers? And so in order, this is Aditi Malik, Minikalan, and Abner Mason. If we take as core principles that we want to keep people enrolled in coverage, we want to improve health outcomes, we want to be responsible stewards of public dollars, and we want to advance health equity, there is no other conclusion than to say we need to be doing more around health-related social needs. 
What is new, however, is the focus from academic medicine or medicine in general, which is tied to this massive healthcare enterprise and turning its $4 trillion attention to this space. And that is our unique opportunity to leverage the strengths we have uh, and our position in this space to then ask, how do we take all of that momentum and some of its inertia assets within healthcare and, and really focus them on the results that matter, which will lead us to a place where we'll be focusing a lot on non-medical types of interventions. Number one thing we've learned is that, and it goes to your point about whole person care, people are not quality measures. But if there's no food in the refrigerator and that household, they are having food insecurity, it's just a non-starter really to really get that mom to prioritize a well child visit for a three-year-old who to her looks healthy. So let's talk a little about implementation. Before we started this, we interviewed some listeners who might listen to the other 80 about what they wanted. And one big thing we heard was, don't just talk about policy, talk about how it's going to be implemented. What's happening on the ground? Is it possible? Is it repeatable? Is it scalable? The guests that you've had on have talked a lot about these big, bold policy moves like, Cal, you know, J.C. Cooper on Calame and even Abner Mason talking about, you know, the work that he's doing and how it it connects with like how things could be scalable and repeatable. What about implementation? Like how how do you tackle such a big issue like that, especially when you say like Medicaid in every state does vary and is different? There are a lot of interesting and unique opportunities to actually evaluate, not after three years, but in real time. So when I lived in California, I uh, led a health information sharing network and we had health outcomes. We had hospitalization, we had ED visits, we had uh, whether people got hospitalized for things like asthma and diabetes that should not cause hospitalization. So I'd love to see the development of partnerships where some of these implementers actually work with the people that are tracking people's health experience across the whole market and start to actually and and be more thoughtful about even maybe not randomizing people, but um, thinking about it in a research-minded way to say, okay, we're going to implement this. Let's get some a baseline in place. Let's start to look at this. Let's share those results with other states that are focusing on the same reentry or Black maternal mortality kind of community. But I think there's great ways to start generating more real-time evidence and data, um, and we just haven't been focused on that to date. How important is evidence in all this? Because because like you say, it's something that's always changing. And, you know, one state tries something and it seems to be working. And so then everyone tries to repeat. It's this repeat game. How important is it to make sure that, you know, we don't slow down the progress, but we also make sure that what is happening is backed by evidence? I, I think a lot about something that Mandy Cohen said in our first episode. She said, listen... I, um, I and my team were so focused on equity and really coming to terms with the lessons of COVID in terms of all of the ways in which our healthcare system is not equitable. But she said, we really have very little data and evidence on what approaches work to improve equity. So a lot of people are throwing a lot of time and energy at that issue 
there's um, very, very um, deep and good intentions. But until we have more evidence and more examples, we're, we're just going to be potentially wasting a lot of money and effort in an area that so desperately needs solutions. So I think the same is true for housing services. Under what circumstances does providing housing really help people with that health lens, improve their health, uh, get access to better food, things like that? Um, because I think this goes back to uh, many of these programs are are limited in the funding. That's something that CMS was very explicit in saying in their waivers that states have gotten. Yes, we will approve you to expand the amount of social services that you offer, but we're going to cap what you can spend on those things. In that situation where these are new things we haven't done before and the amount of resources is capped, we have to more rapidly figure out what sorts of things are working and with what kinds of folks. I don't yet see that broadly being something that's discussed. And that may just be because we're so early days in many of these implementations. So it doesn't worry me that we don't yet have that data. What worries me is that we don't have the systems infrastructure and partnerships to get the data. So it's sort of like we're not building in the learning infrastructure as we're rolling these things out. Um, and that And that concerns me a lot. Um, because I think there are some really interesting, unique ways we could do that, but we're just not putting those into place yet. Yeah. You know, I think this is actually a perfect place to uh, cut away to some of the uh, interviewees that we we had this season and specifically talking about evidence because it is such an important piece of the puzzle. It's what shows that this is working or not working. And so, uh, and so, in this next bit, we're going to hear from, in order, Corbin Petro, Andy Slavitt, and Bradley Gilbert. You know, looking at our populations, particularly in the outreach work that we do, we're seeing major closing in some health disparities. By nurturing a relationship with somebody, you think about people who are from historically underrepresented groups. They probably don't trust the healthcare system. They might not be raising their hand to get treatment for a very stigmatized condition. And so being able to curate those relationships and that trust, we're seeing huge health equity gaps closed. Another investment we have is a company called Plume Health, which serves uh, the transgender population. It's the largest provider of care to transgender Americans and the largest number of transgender providers. People who join Plume within 30 days this is the most one of the most remarkable things I'm going to say on this show. See an 80% reduction in depression and anxiety um, after 30 days at Plume. And that's a reflection of the fact that they're starting from an awful, awful, awful place. And nobody sees them and nobody's helping them and nobody's connecting to them. And so the transformation is almost overnight. So the RAND Corporation did a matched cohort study. So what it showed was the individuals that we housed quickly had a significant drop in their overall costs. These homeless individuals were costing anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 a year with Medi-Cal dollars. I mean, that's really quite significant in terms of ER use, hospital use, et cetera. So the ones that were housed quickly had a significant drop in, in costs, so less hospitalizations, less ED. The ones that took a long time to house, which was sometimes the case, they didn't see a big difference. 
we've heard a lot in this season about one specific word, and that is ecosystem. So thinking in an ecosystem, building an ecosystem of health around a plan member. So can you give me a sense of what have you learned in these interviews about that ecosystem? And what is the best way to start building that for the nation? I think if you take a step back and you imagine I am a health plan and I'm now charged with delivering medical care and social care. So there's going to be housing services, there's going to be reentry services, there's going to be a new equity effort that really gets into communities and homes. And from a patient perspective, that's a lot of different settings and a lot of different environments. It's also a lot of different organizations that have never, ever been part of the conversation. The relationships don't even exist, let alone the contracts. These people don't even know each other. They don't know what's important to each other. We heard a lot about this from J.C. Cooper, who talked about the need to bring all these stakeholders together to even just communicate, what are these new policies? So now it's not just the stakeholders that they've always been talking to, but it's also, you know, food pantries and people who do Meals on Wheels and housing organizations. And and I think she was modeling at the state level through all of that communication what was then going to be required from each and every one of her Medicaid managed care plans. She even said, you need to get on those boards. You need to show up at those community meetings. You need to raise your hand and say, hey, what you're doing is important to us. So I think it goes beyond the provision of services into how do we actually create alignment around the way we work and our goals. It's not going to be something that happens in six months or a year. This is going to be a long-term, I think, project. But it means that an organization, whether that's a doctor or a hospital or a health plan, who always thought of its accountability as kind of ending at the door, now their accountability goes out into the neighborhoods and communities around them. Yeah. And so maybe here, let's just hear a little bit from some of the guests that we've had this season about that ecosystem. So in order, this is J.C. Cooper, Clements Hong, and then Tom Insel. First, a doctor to screen someone, identify something, and refer for housing is not something they do today. That doesn't happen overnight. You have to change systems and processes and and everything in the way that you are digesting information and training your entire healthcare system. Uh, You have to talk to emergency rooms so that if you have someone, they know how to, you know, get those referrals so that the continuum can actually work because the continuum works best if you catch someone in the moment. Uh, Well, healthcare is not always great at that for the record. And so it requires a lot more partnership, a lot more intention, um, and a lot more communication between plans, providers, and uh, those individuals that they're bringing on to do it. So it's a huge lift. How might we better strengthen our, our community infrastructure to deliver care and build a recovery-oriented, community-centered system of care to serve this population that isn't healthcare-centered per se, but health-centered. And, and it incorporates a lot of the social service entities that know how to do this work, have been doing this work, and can now do this work in a much more integrated way with the healthcare side. The system we need is a system that's really healthcare driven, that is, that's providing community resources like clubhouses, like coaching, like the kinds of things that you need to recover and begins to pay for that in a way 
that incentivizes us to scale it. We're not paying for that now. And until we do, it's not going to happen. So you talked a little bit about, you know, learning from each other in this model, having a collaborative model. I think we've heard a lot about what kind of organizations we need. And I wonder if you could sum that up for me from what we've heard this season about what organizations do we need and also what leaders do we need to make those organizations great? Well, I think at a core, there an organization that's affected in this space combines a few things that are often not found together. One, an ability to move fairly quickly and agilely and, and like figure out what's working and then double down on that. The other is this community embeddedness, being deep, uh, having deep roots, having deep connections. We heard about that a lot, I think, from um, Brad Gilbert talking about the Inland Empire. But then a third is being able to leverage in a really profound way data and technology and infrastructure. Um, those are not things that typically go together, right? So you have this concept of a very community-based organization, which might have the relationships, it might have the mission, the passion, but it may not have the infrastructure needed. It may not be able to scale. It may not be able to reach across the country and really make this thing work. And then you have other examples. People in healthcare know a lot about examples like Optum, which have been masterful at combining the, the service delivery piece with the data and technology piece and even new business models. So I think what's exciting is the emergence of um, some models, and we heard about this from Sachin Jane, that was probably the most striking example, that are trying to create um, scale and deep use of technology and data while also staying hyper-focused on these communities and their needs. Um, and he, he, called, he called it the, the biggest small company. Um, and being able to demonstrate that the dollars that are being spent are not going into some uh, profit distribution um, for a publicly traded company, but are really getting getting circled back and cycled back into the communities and the people that need um, need this this these kinds of services the most. And I and I think that brings up a um, a shadowy part of this conversation, which is that. We have a lot of nonprofit healthcare in the U.S. We have a lot of nonprofit hospitals. We have a lot of nonprofit plans as well. But what we see in the behavior of not all of them, but many of those organizations looks an awful lot like the for-profit versions of them. So in the hospital space, you see hospitals, you know, merging. You see rising prices after, after they've merged. You see um, more focus on, on the bottom line than I think on service. So part of the reckoning that we need to do is actually getting back to our service and mission roots and having a way to ask ourselves, is this work that we're doing, is the focus that we're taking truly serving people most in need? Um, and if it's not, let's figure out a different way to do it. Um, so I think there's some ways policy can urge that along. Certainly putting more pressure on organizations that are nonprofit to show where their dollars are going and to reinvest in their communities. But I think this is um, a, a bigger conversation that's happening kind of underneath and above and alongside the other 80 conversations that we're having. Yeah. And, and I think it is a really important people first kind of discussion. One of the things that you do every episode that I really love is at the end of every interview, you ask, 
your guest, what is a leadership lesson learned the hard way? And often there's so much gold in those answers. And so we just wanted to pull out two that that really struck us in this season. So in order, talking about leadership, this is Mandy Cohen and then Sachin Jane. What I realized, number one, as a leader, I had to personally prioritize equity. It couldn't be my health equity leader, which I had. It couldn't be delegated. And that's what I want most leaders to hear is like, you cannot delegate the responsibility for equity. It has to live with you and it has to permeate every decision and piece of the organization. That was a big learning um, for me. And then there was no one solution to it. It was just how you had to work every day and every decision. Obviously, that starts with data and good data, right? That visibility was so critical for me to make decisions. We need more ethical leadership in healthcare. What I mean by that is we need to make sure that the words on the wall of every healthcare organization, the ethical compass, the values, the mission statements, the vision statements actually mean something. And that the behaviors of leaders, and you know, actually align um, to things. And, and and I think we've gotten lost in this glib, no margin, no margin, no mission chatter that creates this ethical laxity in organizations to begin doing things like aggressively billing their patients, or you know, going so far as to repossess their assets when they can't pay their bills. These are not the reasons that these organizations were founded. Let's talk about data. Obviously, data is really important and is going to become even more important. But also, there's this other side of data that data can be very helpful, but data can also create harm. And so, can you give me a sense of kind of uh, what you've heard from guests this season about data and how we should or should not be using it? I think there's been a lot of talk on the podcast about the importance of data. If we're going to be serving people in a whole person way, we need to have a whole person picture of who they are and what their needs are. And so that points to being able to look at their medical needs, but also look at their social needs. Are they, do they have a safe and an affordable place to live? Um, what about transportation? What about social support and all of those things? So I think it, it is obvious that a whole person health approach sits on a foundation of more effective and more complete data. I think the thing that is lurking behind that, though, and I wouldn't say we've heard about it yet from a lot of our guests, is this history of um, uh, punishing people who have needs. Um, And this is especially related to people who are black and brown. An example, I think, is the high, high, high proportion of Native American families where Child Protective Services has come into the home and and either taken the kids away or or said they're they're observing and they may do that. And so what does it look like for a mom who's now said, you know, four nights a week, we don't have a good meal on the table? Is that putting her family at risk? And, And that points to an even darker side of that, which is are we punishing people simply because we don't have an effective anti-poverty approach in this country. And I think that especially plays out when we're talking about intersecting um, circles. So we're looking at child, child protective services and medical care. Or we're looking at schools. 
And what if the kid is, um, we now find out from something the person said in a medical appointment that the kid hasn't been going to school. So what happens to the family in their, in the school setting? Uh, what if we, um, build a bunch of data sets around people's needs and then somehow those get in the hands of credit agencies or other kinds of agencies. I don't think we have really thought very much about the governance of these data. Who should be able to access it? Are there things that should be out of bounds? What about data sharing with other agencies? Who gets to make those decisions? How do we bring the voice of the patient and the consumer into this conversation about harms? Because I would say many of the people we've been talking to, it feels so obvious that we need more data. This other side of it feels very challenging and very difficult, and it's hard to know even how to address it. Um, so, but, but I think if we don't do it now, uh, we're going to be very sorry a few years from now when we start to see these harms showing up. That gets me thinking a little bit about moving into season two. When you look into season two, what else is there that you want to tackle that you don't feel like you've tackled yet in season one? I mean, one topic is really that implementation perspective, because uh, we've almost exclusively been talking to the heads of organizations, the CEOs, and I'd like to get closer to where the rubber hits the road. So what about the teams that are implementing street medicine programs or reentry programs or programs to improve equity? What are they learning? I think also really trying to dig into what is the evidence? What are we what has been impactful? How do we know that that's impactful? What kind of workforce did you need? How did you organize your team? Who are your partners? All these questions that really will determine whether something's effective. So I, I think one big tranche of things that we're going to be doing is getting closer to the execution and implementation in a thoughtful way, um, because many of our audience are still people making fairly uh b- big level decisions, but I think we never want that to be too far away from uh, the evidence on the ground. And I think this question of data and technology infrastructure and the kind of interchange between data and technology and service delivery, and then how do we protect that is another big area that a lot of people are interested in. And it's been coming up a lot in the conversations. Um, And then... You know, we've heard from some health plan perspectives, but I would say I really want to deepen the understanding of what what does this look like if I'm the health plan trying to receive the policy from the state and then also partner with innovators to help me deliver on these goals and what am I focused on? How quickly can I move? Um, That's a part of the implementation, but I think those actors are especially important um, in this conversation. So one thing I think that has been a theme this season that's come up a lot with Andy and Abner and Bradley Gilbert in some ways is this kind of like, what are the opportunities out there now for Medicaid founders and conversely, the companies that are working within the Medicaid system? And so I wonder, can you just give me a sense of, you know, what are your big takeaways about all of the different things we've heard about that opportunity and also the challenges for those companies working in that space? Well, first, maybe I'll just mention some of the sort of domains where I think uh, having effective uh, programs and interventions are incredibly important. I mean, one obviously is um, mental health and substance use disorders. Um, and I think we will also probably be hearing more in season two about um, 
prenatal and postnatal and birthing services. That's a really big area for Medicaid and for this um, program as well. I think the advice that we heard over and over again was one, this is not an area where a, a technology solution that's not embedded in human touch is going to be effective. So don't just throw a piece of technology across the transom and expect it to have an impact. And two, lived experience and deep understanding of the experience of these different um, issues or different kind of life experiences is going to be incredibly important. And I think Andy Slavitt talked about this quite a bit. You know, he said, if, if you come to me saying you want to have a company that makes a, a lot of money and you have an idea for doing this, I'm not going to take your, your meeting. But if you come and say, I really understand the needs of people with persistent, serious mental illness. And I have, I think, some insights from that about how we can do that better and, and my ideas for scaling. That's when you can really get um, the, the investor's attention. We heard that also from Aditi Malik saying you really need a deep sense of, of the population. But we also heard you need a deep understanding of Medicaid as a program. You need to know the kinds of players that are in that, whether that's health plans or community organizations. It's different from the rest of healthcare. So I think it's not just understanding the, the clients, but also understanding the environment and the context in which the work occurs. Okay. So we talked about season two. Let's just pause for a second. Just do a little wrap up of season one. Podcasting was new for you. I think you're very natural at it. Obviously, you've led many a panel and interview on stage, but I wonder how making a podcast about this has maybe changed your understanding or has given you a different kind of understanding about engaging with information and engaging in conversation with people that perhaps going into it, you you didn't have. Well, I think we've talked about this. I am someone who loves to be prepared. And I spent a lot of time preparing and studying and researching. I would just say, I think there's a natural limit of the, of course, you want to go into a conversation, having some ideas of things you want to follow and topics and areas in which maybe that organization or that person has really been interested. But this is a conversation. So that means really listening to the person and being attentive to them and really thinking about what is the next natural question that might come out of what we just heard? Um, because I don't think people don't want to, people can read reports, people can go to websites. What they, what is often compelling and exciting in those driveway moments or when you understand the kind of personal side of that story or really get to put two very different ideas together. So I think being really present um, letting a conversation go where it needs to and wants to go, even while still keeping it in a context. And that means, I think, more about being relaxed and being in a place where you're comfortable and setting some rapport with a person. Um, the prepping is important, but it, it is certainly not enough. Well, and I think, I mean, obviously I'm a podcast producer, but one of the beauties of podcasting is that it gives you the space to have a conversation that nobody has time for if it's not 
for something, you know? I think we heard from, like I said, when we interviewed your listeners before we started, listeners saying, like, I have, I don't have time to stop and talk to someone. I don't have time to, like, see someone at a conference and get really deep into health equity with them. And so I think you're doing a great service for, for this space to kind of be able to stop and have those conversations, to go in depth, to ask the questions that's on, that are on everyone's minds. And so I hope you see the good that you're doing also in, in having these conversations and pushing people to answer those questions. Like, how are we going to do this? Everyone wants to do it. How do we actually make that happen in an industry where nobody has time? Everyone's working hard. They're you know, on the ground doing the things that need to be done without the time to kind of step back and have all those big conversations with with the people and their colleagues around them. So just a kudos to you that that you're bringing all that together. Thank you. And maybe I'll use this moment to talk about Avery, the producer. Um, when I when I started this, I talked to a lot of different people who were helping neophytes like me start a podcast. And what I realized very quickly I wanted is really a, a master storyteller and someone who could pull out the thread of the story, um, even if uh, it was kind of buried in different corners. And so it's been such a delight to work with Avery because she brings a really journalistic pr- uh, approach to this. But also, like, if I have a question about mic placement or how to get rid of a certain kind of noise, that kind of like the sound engineering side of it also is really expert. So it's just been incredibly fun um, to have a partner in this process. To anyone out there who's thinking about doing a podcast, I just really encourage you to think about who is that partner that can complement your expertise and your voice with storytelling magic. And I've found it. So that's really nice. It's been really fun for me to, I mean, I think I said to you on our first phone call, I have never lived in an American healthcare system. I live in Canada, but I'm really, it's really interesting to me to learn as I go. I I pick projects specifically for that reason, projects where I know I'm going to come away with a wealth of knowledge. And maybe that's the journalist in me that just wants to learn about everything, but, but it's been really fun. So I just want to make sure this wouldn't be another 80 podcast if I didn't ask you the last two questions that you ask every guest. Oh, no. Which I didn't tell you I was going to do, <laughs> but I think we have to do it, which is question number one. Um, I'm going to say it slowly so you have time to think. <laughs> what is a leadership lesson that you have learned the hard way? Oh, goodness. Well, I think I think this goes along with that prepping kind of skill set, which is um, I love I'm so curious and I love a good conversation and I love a good question. And I remember, um, well, two, two people I worked closely with, one person said, you don't always have to have the best question in the room. And what I think that meant was, um, your job, what you have to do in a given context is different at, to, as a leader. Sometimes you're trying to help people reach consensus. Sometimes you're helping people grapple with something they didn't understand. Maybe it's around conflict. And the the flexibility to sense into what is needed at the moment from the people around you. Um, and I think we all have patterns that we're comfortable with, but to really try to break out of those patterns and learn a broader set of, of uh, capabilities, I think is really important. And, and that brings me to the second example, which is my boss at the White House said, 
Sometimes your job is to bring energy into the room and sometimes your job is to take it out. And that was, I think, a really specific example of that, of what my previous mentor had said, which is um, really as leaders, our work is to help hold the vessel for change. And um, we need to fight our own impulses to always kind of use the same tool set. I'm not, I won't say I've perfected the answer to that of using, but I'm really, I think, much more aware of it. And I also really study other people when they're in those roles to learn from them. I, I kind of am always have an eye on, it's also, I'm a, I love facilitating. So I'm always looking at the way people are doing that themselves. What's a question that you wish I'd asked you? How many different locations have you recorded in over the last <laughs> 10 months? I can't keep track, Claudia. I say to my partner all the time, I'm like, every time I talk to her, she's somewhere different. And I can't, I, I'm usually very <laughs> observant, but I can't tell if you're in the same house as you were the last time I talked to you. So I'll list some of the places in which our work has occurred. So it's occurred when I was at Esalen Institute. It's occurred when I was in um, in Indonesia and in Thailand, in Hawaii, in Mexico, and now in suburban Maryland. And um, what I have learned is I have to bring my mic wherever I go because you never know when you're going to have to record something, an intro or outro. Um, another little tip and trick that Avery taught me that I wish you'd asked about is how to create a... Um, a blanket fort in which to do recording. <laughs> this has been very charming and you've done an excellent job with the season. And and now you're a pro podcaster and I know you're on sabbatical, but I think you texted me the other week. Nobody told me that podcasting is a part-time job. I don't get paid for, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but I think you're doing it's really a, fun. It is. And I think you're doing a great service for the conversation that you're really working to drive. I think it's a, a very important work. So We'll uh, keep doing it in season two. Great. Thanks, Avery. Thanks, Claudia. A big thank you to all of you listening and for all the support you've shared along the way. The best way to support this podcast is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Or if there's an episode you really like, share it with a friend. We're going to take a break in August before coming back with Season 2 of The Other 80 in September. In Season 2, we're going to dig into the evidence for what is working and on-the-ground insights on implementing and scaling. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. There's more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time... I'm Claudia Williams.